Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 139 of Impact Boom. My name is Amadeo Watson, and I'm passionate about the power of business and innovation to create positive impact. Today, we're speaking with Afosa Ojono, a senior research fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation and co-author of The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty. Afosa's work focuses on understanding how to best create prosperity in low- and middle-income countries. The pillars of his research include understanding why poor countries have remained poor despite the trillions of dollars spent on development over the past several decades, on analysing a country's capabilities to help it better predict the viability of projects, and helping investors, entrepreneurs and development professionals improve their project success rates. On today's podcast, we'll discuss Afosa's projects and how innovation can be harnessed to drive forward positive change. We'll get Afosa's insights and thoughts on some of the most pressing challenges around the world and their solutions. We'll also discuss Afosa and Clayton's latest book, Prosperity Paradox, and how innovation can lift nations out of poverty. Afosa, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, Amadeo. Very excited. So are we. Just to start off, could you please share a bit about your background in socioeconomic development and innovation? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm sort of an accidental uh, innovation development guy. I went to college for engineering, uh, graduated from Vanderbilt University, which is a university here in the United States, uh, in 2005. I was fortunate to leave Nigeria uh, in 2000 to come to college here. After I graduated, I got a job and uh, I was working and life was good. I was living what we call the American dream here. And uh, in 2008, I began to read about uh, development, economics, and poverty. And the text I was reading, uh, just the information I was consuming, it gripped me like nothing had ever gripped me before. And I remember on my third book, I read about this 10-year-old girl who had to wake up every morning at 3 a.m., fetch firewood, walk uh, miles to the market to sell. You know, she was 10 years old in Ethiopia. I remember what I was doing when I was 10. Um, I wasn't doing that at all. And uh, that night, it was February 2008, I was sobbing in my room and uh, I just said, I have to do something about this. I don't know what to do, but I got to do something. And that night really began my um, my journey into uh, the world I am now, which is really understanding how uh, innovation can make life a lot better for the billions of people in the world who still struggle to make ends meet uh, every day. Right after I read about that 10-year-old girl, her name's Amaret, um, you know, I went back to Nigeria for the first time in eight years. 
And I started a non-profit organization called Poverty Stops Here with a group of friends. And we just wanted to help, right? So we would raise money in the U.S. and we would go to poor communities in Nigeria, provide access to water, would build wells. I would give out microloans, so $200, $300, uh, sometimes a bit more. And then we would uh, fund some education initiatives for uh, for young kids. And we felt, you know, we're just doing our part. And I think um, uh, in terms of just a big milestone and a big learning, uh, starting Poverty Stops here, being able to raise, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and um, ultimately learning a lot more about how hard it is to do development on the ground. Uh, those were big lessons that I learned. What is it that drives you to work in development and innovation in the space that you're involved in? I think if, if, if I could um, just summarize with one word, it would be hope. Um, and that word is is how I tell people we summarize our book. Um, you know, when I left Nigeria in 2000, I, I had no intentions of ever going back. My I was happy. I had left it, you know, sort of, in my opinion, continent where there was no opportunity. And I came to America, the land of opportunity. But after I started to read about what was going on, I realized, oh my, if more people don't go back and try to figure out how to solve this poverty problem, uh, we're never going to do it. And I think the more I immersed myself in this literature, the more I just had hope. Like, I believed that there was a way out. Um, and as we've been doing our research over the past few years, uh, I found that innovation is the best chance we have. And that's really what drives me to work in this field. Mm. And part of your work now involves helping improve project success rates. What do you believe are the key considerations in building and sustaining a successful enterprise? Um, I like to, I mean, you'll, you'll notice I like to, I like to summarize things and then we'll, we'll talk more in depth. Um, so if I can again use one word, it would be theories. So my second year at business school, I, I was fortunate to go to Harvard Business School and, and work and study under Clay Christensen. My second year, I took his course. It's the most popular course at the business school. It's called Building and Sustaining a Successful Enterprise. And I'm sure your listeners probably know who Clay Christensen is. He's the father of disruptive innovation. I mean, one of the greatest management thinkers of all time. And he, he designed this course around a set of theories. Um, and he says, look, a theory is simply a statement of causality. Um, it's, a, it's a belief that if I do X, Y is going to happen. And in that, when you start to think about the word theories that way, you realize they are very practical. We all live based on theories. Uh, a simple one is, you know, if I go to the gym three days a week, I'm going to lose X amount of pounds. Or if I cut out sugar, I'm going to, you know, become healthier. Those are simple theories. And so he's designed this course around management theories that can help us as new managers um, make better decisions in uh, the organizations that we're going to be going to after we graduate from business school. And so ultimately what we've done is we've taken the theories in this course and we've now applied it to economic development. And some of the things that we found were just absolutely fascinating. 
And so they really help us to improve, not only improve the success rates in projects, but think about how you can make a, a project or an organization a lot more sustainable. And so it's really making sure that whatever decision you're making as, as an organization, as an enterprise, you have really good theories as a foundation of your decision making. Hmm. And I'm interested in knowing, could you provide an example of one of those theories and um, how they, I guess, yeah. contribute to building a successful enterprise? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So think about the word innovation, right? I mean, it's a buzzword. We all love it. I love it. The, the politicians love it. I, I don't know anybody who doesn't love it. Mm. But what do we mean when we say innovation? Innovation means so many different things to many people. So the first thing uh, Professor Christensen does is he says, look, let's categorize innovation in a way that it can actually be meaningful for us with regards to helping the economy grow in a vibrant way. Mm -hmm. And when you begin to think about innovation that way, you take a step back and he's like, well, from that standpoint, from the economy standpoint, there are three types of innovation. The first type we call market-creating innovation. And these are innovations that transform complicated products into products that are simple and affordable so that many more people in society can afford them. And so think about um, Henry Ford's Model T. That was a market-creating innovation. It created a new vibrant market for cars, and so many other people who couldn't afford cars could now afford them. He didn't invent the car. That, that's very different. Um, but he created an innovation such that it increased access significantly. Mm. Now, that innovation he created now serves as a solid foundation for future growth uh, for an economy. Because in order to do that, he had to hire so many more people to sell the product, make the product, distribute the product, service the product, provide raw materials, and so on and so forth. So that's one type of innovation. They make it simple and affordable so many people can afford. A second type is what we call sustaining innovation. These are innovations that make good products better. And so simply, it's like, um, you know, you, you, you've got heated seats in your car, you've got power windows, and you've got uh, uh, adaptive cruise control. Uh, those are very important as well for economies and, and, and organizations to stay competitive and relevant. However, when you begin to think about the impact they have on an economy, very different than market-creating innovations. Mm. Sustaining innovations are more substitutive in character because they're targeting people who can already afford existing products in the market. In our language, we say they are targeting the consumption economy. The market-creating innovations are targeting the non-consumption economy, people who would love to consume but can't. Mm. And the third type, really quickly, is efficiency innovations. And these are innovations that help you make good products cheaper. So this is classic case outsourcing. Um, this is also a lot of resource extraction industries where, you know, you're selling a commodity product and you introduce a new technology that helps you reduce your workforce by a particular percentage, but you increase your productivity. Now, that type of innovation, also important, 
It has a place in its economy, in the economy, but it has a different impact on the economy. And so as an organization and as a country, we would be well served by understanding that innovation is not this universal word that means the same thing regardless of the circumstance, but they're different types, and each type has a different impact on the economy. So that's just a, an example of how that that course, that, that simple theory of understanding, if I create a market, here's what will happen. If I make a good product better, here's what's likely going to happen. Uh, if I invest in efficiency innovations, people in this community are probably going to lose jobs, and I, I need to think about how to replace and so on. Those things help us become more critical thinkers and much better managers. Mm, that's fantastic. You've outlined theories as, as something that helps individuals improve project success rates, but if we were to flip it and go the other angle, what are the most common challenges that investors, entrepreneurs, and development professionals face when building successful enterprise? And what advice do you commonly give to work around these? Yeah, I know. So that's, that's a brilliant question. And I think the answer is, is counterintuitive. Um, I'll give, I'll give two responses to that. The first one is the obsession with ending poverty or ending a particular sick illness or sickness or uh, providing water, providing clinics, you know, um, that obsession um, and whatever limited success uh, um, the, the organizations get is often a, a big challenge and a big problem. And what I mean by that is if my goal is to end uh, extreme poverty, uh, then or to alleviate poverty, if you will. There are many things that I will do as an organization that don't actually help people begin the march towards prosperity, but they do alleviate poverty, and so they 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 seem to be things that would be acceptable. Now, the example I'll give is with uh, the organization I founded, uh, Poverty uh, Stops Here. Now, we built, as an organization, five wells, and of those five wells, four of them broke down. Now, after the second well broke down, I knew that the third well we would build was probably going to break down and the people in the community would not get access to water. Mm. But because my goal at the time was to alleviate poverty, I told myself, you know, but at least the well is going to work for six months, maybe a year, and that would help. And when you have an entirely different goal, which is to create something that's more sustainable, that can actually get people a foot on the ladder towards prosperity, then projects like that no longer cut it because you know that they're just not going to be enough. And so I think the first one, with, with it's, 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 a, it's a challenge and a mistake. Uh, it's unfortunate, but that's that's one where people, we, we actually um, uh, focus on solving the wrong problems. Uh, try, trying to uh, alleviate poverty. Uh, I think that that's not the problem we should try to solve. The second one um, is more to to the investors. The best opportunities actually come from seeing what many others uh, can't, which is which is quite interesting when you think about it. Where every investor wants an edge, every entrepreneur wants an edge, but the minute you meet an investor or an entrepreneur who tries to convince you to invest in something that isn't quite 
you can't see, it becomes suspicious. So, so I'll go back to my example with Henry Ford. Before Henry Ford said, I want to democratize cars, cars were toys for the rich. Um, we had ways of moving around. We had the trains. Uh, we had uh, electric uh, car, uh, train cars on, in the city, horses and carriages. And we organized our lives around those modes of transportation. And cars were very expensive and things that only rich people could afford. Well, Henry Ford said, I want to make this available for everybody. And he lost quite a few investors when he made that decision because they just could not see it. How could people afford this? There's no way. It's impossible. But he created a new market for cars that drove a lot of development. A similar thing happened about 20 years ago with the proliferation of mobile phones, especially in Africa where an entrepreneur by the name of Mo Ibrahim said, I want to democratize the cell phone for the average African. And people said he was crazy. There was no way. These people are too poor. To cut the long story short, he was able to create a new market for mobile telephony. And in seven years, seven years, he was able to create over $3.4 billion worth of value from the poorest continent in the world. Because he saw an opportunity that many others didn't, and he went after it. And so those are two, I think, misconceptions, challenges, mistakes that I think a, a lot of groups might make. Mm. And if we move on, could you please share a bit more about the specific innovation techniques or strategic approaches you employ to create positive change through business? Yeah. I mean, I think... Um, you know, business gets a lot of bad rap, the private sector, um, the investor class, uh, and, you know, the private sector, we have done some things that are bad. If you look at the financial crisis, people, you know, say the bankers and so on. But with the, with the new way of categorizing innovation, I think that helps. That can really help uh, uh, investors. That can really help governments, policymakers, and development people to really see that not all innovation is created equally, right? And when you create a new market that provides access for many people, things that historically they haven't had access to, I think that has a lot, there's a lot of opportunity there for good to come out of that. And so one of the, one of the examples I give is a company in Mexico called Clinicas de la Zucar. And they are a chain of diabetes clinics. The average person in Mexico spends about a thousand dollars on diabetes care uh, annually. Um, and it's one of the fastest growing uh, diabetes uh, countries in the world where the, 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 there's a, a high rate of infection of the, of the disease. Clinicas de la Zucar thought, thought about starting a nonprofit where you would raise money and and, and help uh, people get uh, treatment. But then instead, he took a step back and created an organization that leveraged technology, efficiency, um, and certain organizational structures. And now he's providing diabetes care for about $250. He's creating a new market for people who historically did not have access to diabetes care. He's doing it in a profitable and sustainable way and doing it in a way that's actually much better than he would have if he, you know, tried to start a nonprofit and, and, and raise donations. 
So I think really understanding that there are different types of innovations and you can have significant impact on an economy if you focus on uh, creating a new market by providing access for people who historically didn't have it. Before, Afosan, we were talking about the common challenges that investors and entrepreneurs and development professionals face. You you alluded to, I guess, a common problem or issue that they face is that they seem to be solving the wrong problem. Nowadays, there's a lot of traction around organizations becoming purposeful about having a clear statement or a clear mission that seeks to solve a social or environmental problem. So businesses having a purpose that is centered around social or environmental impact. Do you think that having a clear purpose helps accelerate innovation and that it is slightly more specific and addresses a clear problem? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Um, the, the thing I would, I would caution though is, um, uh, here again, a lot of things I know I've learned from Professor Christensen. Um, it is a theory of uh, a model he teaches us uh, called deliberate and emergent strategies. Now, deliberate and emergent strategies are simply um, one of the models we learn in the, in the course where um, at the onset of an organization, uh, when you're not quite sure of the market or what you're supposed to be doing, what you want to do, you want to have a more of an emergent strategy. You want to listen, you want to inquire, you want to learn. And then when you figure out a business model that makes sense, and you know, nonprofits have a business model too. This isn't just for full profits. But when you figure out a business model that makes sense, that can scale, then you transition to a deliberate strategy. And that's really when you, you blow up and scale. Because when you scale an organization, you have to remember you scale the good and you scale the bad. And so if you, if you go back to my example with Clinica Stella Zucar, if Javier Lozano, who's the founder of this uh, wonderful organization, if he said, my purpose here is to provide diabetes care, and I want to start a nonprofit that does it, and that would be the purpose of the organization. Still a good purpose. But you see, he has, he has developed a deliberate strategy at a time where he should be emergent, at a time where he should be learning. You'd be asking different questions. How can I leverage technology to provide these this solution? Is there a way I could make this significantly less expensive? Is the current solution, even if we raised all the money, is the current solution actually good for the diabetes patient? He was asking himself those questions and he came to find out the current solution actually wasn't good. And so purpose is absolutely critical because it gives you a North Star. I would add to that that you must figure out if you're in a space where you need to have a deliberate strategy or if you're still in, in, in emergent strategy mode. And I think you do that for your organization, your business, and you do that for your life as well. Fascinating. Afosa, part of the focus of your research has been around understanding why poor countries have remained poor despite the trillions of dollars spent on development over the past several decades. Why is this? It's quite simple, actually, when you think about it, because we've been trying to fix poverty. We've been trying to fix corruption. We've been trying to fix uh, infrastructure. We've been trying to fix institutions. We've been trying to fix all these things, which are simply symptoms, symptoms of a lack of an innovation culture, a culture of curiosity. Um, and no matter how much money we spend on 
pushing the right solutions to many poor societies, we're never going to get to fixing poverty. And that's really at the heart of the paradox. That's the heart of our, of our book is you don't get to fixing poverty by trying to fix poverty. You have to have an entirely different goal and a different agenda. You know, when you look at over the last 30 years, we celebrate the fact that many people, billions, over a billion have, have been lifted out of poverty. And that's a good thing to celebrate. But when you take a step back and say, who, who are these people? Where they come from? They come primarily from one country, and that's China. Hmm. And less so, to a lesser extent, India. A couple hundred million in India, about 800 million in China. So you take out India and China, and we're not looking good with regards to poverty demographics. The number of people living in poverty in Africa is going up. It's projected to keep going up. But when you look at the strategies that these countries employed to, quote-unquote, fix poverty, entirely different. China said, I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing and simplifying, but uh, yeah. China said, let's innovate. Let us create stuff that the world wants. Let's create stuff China wants, and let's learn how to do that. And so you go to China, you start a company, you got a JV with a Chinese company, and they learn the technology. They, you know, they figure it out. Very different strategy. And as a result of that, they, they, their focus was not primarily on alleviating poverty. It was creating a prosperous China. Now, when you go to many countries in Africa, very different strategy. Let's alleviate poverty. Let's try to fix this poverty. Let's help these people. Very different strategy. And so that's why many countries remain poor today. You don't get to fix your poverty by trying to fix poverty. You have to have a different focus, a different goal. I think creating prosperity is a much better goal to have. Mm. And, and that's the main essence of yours and Professor Clayton Christensen's new book, Prosperity Paradox, in how innovation can lift nations out of poverty. What is the new lens on how governments, development organizations, entrepreneurs, and the rest should view economic development? Yeah. I mean, I think um, two answers really quickly. One is, um, it's actually the title of Chapter 3, In Struggle Lies Opportunity. And when you see people struggling to do something, then that has to be a mark, not just of poverty, but of significant economic and social opportunity. So that's what Mo Ibrahim saw 20 years ago when people would want to um, see their parents. They would have to take days-long journeys to the villages. When people would want to have to communicate with a friend, people could not call in sick to work. I mean, it's simple things. He saw that struggle and said, there's an immense opportunity here. Now, the solution to the prosperity paradox is incredibly difficult. I mean, he had a hard time building the telco infrastructure in Africa, but in that struggle lies opportunity. That's the first one. The second one is a concept we explain in the book called pushing versus pulling. See, poverty almost always shows itself as a lack of resources. It's a lack of schools, a lack of water, a lack of roads, a lack of uh, clinics. And so our response is to push the solutions to these problems. We push the wells, as I did. We push the schools, push the clinics, we push the roads, we push all these things. But many 
many a time, these solutions are temporary at best. Um, and I would be a testament to that. And a lot of research we uncover in the book also shows that so many projects that we push and do not do not work. Instead, a different way to think about this is what might a new market for mobile telephony, for instance, pull into the economy? And I'll answer that question. <laughs> Today, the new market in Africa, at least, is pulling in about 20 plus billion dollars of tax revenue, uh, about 4 million or so jobs. It's also pulling in about 200 billion dollars of economic impact into the economy. And it's pulling in a bunch of other things. It's actually pulling in education. It's pulling in healthcare. It's pulling in infrastructure development. And it's pulling in the development of the institutions that can help govern the telecommunications sector and a couple of other adjacent sectors. You know, the lawyers writing contracts, bankers financing cell towers. And so you see, it's a very different approach. Same people, same demographics. One says, I'm going to push what I believe the solution is for you, water, education, uh, schools, and uh, clinics, and so on. The other says, let me lean into your struggle, understand what you're going through, I'll create a new market that helps you make progress. And as a result of that, that market is going to pull in so many things into the economy. And so I hope that lens really comes through in the book and that it begins to change the way people see these problems. Mm. That's fascinating. That push and pull dynamic quite clearly highlights the issue there and, and a way around it. First, as, as a final note, could you please recommend some great books on innovation and impact for our listeners? Yeah, so a lot of this stuff we, we talk about in the book, I will be the first to say it's not easy to do, <laughs> especially when you have share, shareholders or managers that are screaming down your, your throat. Um, so I'd recommend two books. One is Dual Transformation. It's written by a guy by the name of Scott Anthony, Clark Gilbert, um, and I think one other author, um, and it says, how do we develop prosperous organizations that can face disruptive threat while still keeping the core business going, right? And so many organizations today are designed to push solutions onto uh, poor countries. How can they, while they keep doing that, but they, they start to think, man, how can we develop a, a different pool strategy? Right. And so that, that book will help. Another one is called The Innovator's Guide to Growth. So in our book, we talk a lot about non-consumption. We talk about the consumption economy and the non-consumption economy and how you really can't see the non-consumption economy a lot of times uh, with conventional demographics. And so Innovator's Guide to Growth really helps you think about uh, non-consumption and how you actually can target it and build an organization uh, that focuses on that. Fantastic. Afosa, thank you very much for your generous insights and time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.